Welcome to the Fit Strength Performance Podcast, where you will be informed, educated, and empowered in order to take charge and take action so you can reach your athletic and or fitness goals. The only way for you to get stronger, faster, and better conditioned is to be consistent every day, all year long, doing things that will ensure your mind and body are strong and resilient. If you're ready to make changes, then let's go. Real quick, if you're a parent of an athlete 8 to 10 years old, you're going to want to keep listening to this. Starting May 1st, we are scheduling, we are running our third fundamental session. This class is for athletes 8 to 10 years old. This is a great class. It's a fun class. It's really going to help educate young athletes how to move in the weight room, but also how to improve their overall athleticism. This isn't going to be a class where we're putting a bar in your kid's back. This isn't a class where we're teaching your kid Olympic lifts. It's a class solely focused on helping young athletes manage their own body weight, um, improve their their spatial awareness, working on coordination, speed, quickness, and doing the things that are going to help prepare them for when they are able to lift heavier weights. And we're going to work on the squat, the hinge, pushing, pulling, developing core strength. And we're going to have, we're going to play games and have a lot of fun. It's awesome for young kids. We've had a great experience thus far. Um, This is our third session. If you are interested in this, what you have to do is you have to go to fit-strength.com slash fundamentals hyphen youth hyphen sports hyphen performance. This is a great class. Don't miss out. Um, It starts May 1st. It's going to be Mondays and Wednesdays from 7 to 8 p.m. Thanks so much. Hey, what's going on? Welcome back. Um, to another episode. Today, I'm going to be doing a Q&A of some questions that athletes, parents have asked me in the gym. Um, just thought it'd be, it would be nice to go down this avenue um, instead of highlight just a specific topic, um, just to shape it up. Um, so this is, you know, Wednesday, April 5th, and these questions have been asked um, within the last couple days. And they're questions that continuously get asked, um, you know, at the gym from athletes and parents. So right now I got five questions. Um, again, while you're listening to this, if you're someone that's got questions and you want me to answer them, um, and you listen to this podcast, you know, all you have to do, go to, go to Instagram, you know, and you can just DM me these questions. And, you know, I usually, I answer them on, you know, via Instagram. If someone sends me a, a, you know, a question, I'm going to answer it. Or you can always email us at info at fit-strength.com, info at fitstrength.com, and just ask us our question or ask us your question and we'll answer it. But I'll also make a note to, you know, potentially bring this up on a podcast so I can get into more detail. So the first question that I have is, um, you know, why higher volume during training? So it was a question from one of our, our um, clients at the gym. Um, it's a great question. Um, you know, curiosity is is very important, especially in the weight room, especially in training, so you can understand and buy into this, um, buy into the the uh, the environment, buy into the plan. Um, because the more you buy into it, um, the more benefit, the more the more beneficial it's going to be for you. So when we're perf- when we're prescribing higher volume training, you know, the thought process goes between like 
Um, you know, you have power, you have absolute strength, you have strength, you have hypertrophy, you have muscular endurance. Um, so, you know, the higher volume can, can flirt around the hypertrophy and muscular endurance. Um, if you look at some, uh, you know, infographs or just some, some coaches out there, some practitioners who've been doing a, you know, a great job, um, for longer than I even been alive. Um, you look at anywhere from, you know, that one to three reps, if it's extremely, extremely heavy, you're looking at that absolute strength. If it's anywhere from, you know, your three to five reps that could be seen as strength. Um, if you're looking at eight to 12, that could be your hypertrophy or six to 12 could be your hypertrophy. And then you have 12, 12 and up, you know, some may say it's like, you know, six to 15 is hypertrophy and then 15 plus reps is muscular endurance. Um, and then if you're one to five and you're moving really, really fast, that's going to be your power. So those are those boxes we're checking based on those reps, sets, um, and the, the volume of, of um, training. So when we're prescribing higher volume, you know, we're thinking of a couple things. You know, one, we're going to think of muscular, muscular hypertrophy. Um, depending on the athlete, it could be that muscular endurance. If you're a cross country, if you're a long distance track runner, if you're a cyclist, something like that, 12 or 12 to 15 or plus reps is going to be your muscular endurance. Um, I really like higher volume training because, um, it's going to improve connective tissue. It's going to, you know, help with neurological connections. So it can help with balance coordination. Um, you know, a lot of young athletes, they're very flimsy, you know, right. If you see them running, their arms are just flopping around, their legs are flopping around. So those, that higher volume of training can help, you know, almost connect their body so it's more organized, it's more structured, it's moving more fluidly. Um, so higher volume training can benefit that. And then depending on our clients, um, our athletes, you know, there, there's some research that suggests that the higher volume can help with tendon health and, you know, that connective tissue. So that can, it could be a, a, a therapeutic approach, um, a, a rehabilitation approach, um, it could be an injury preventative approach, you know, building up that muscular endurance, building up that muscular size, improving coordination, right? That can help an athlete be more coordinated in their sport, even an adult if you, if you play any rec sports. Um, and then there's an aesthetic look too, right? Higher volume can give you more of an aesthetic look. You know, there is a mentality that if you are playing a sport in a tank top, um, you know, you do, you do want to have, you do want to look, you know, relatively fit. You know, right? So higher volume training can provide that psychological psychological confidence, um, enhancement, and just mood and feel just because you are looking a way that you you want to look. Um, so there's that neurological feel. And then last, there's this, there, there's an improved in technique. Um, so higher volume training, whether it's goblet squats, whether it's, you know, say it's going to be something that's going to improve upper body mobility, like landmine pressing, really getting that serratus. Um, you know, so split squats, things like that. There's going to be some improvement in technique for some of your bigger lifts, you know, higher volume RDLs with a kettlebell or a barbell, um, obviously staying in a comfort rep range for that athlete, depending on their age. Um, this is where the higher volume training can really improve their form and technique for really, really young athletes. You know, we're working on a hinge. We may just give them 15 pound kettlebell knowing that, right, it's not going to really harm them because it's not that heavy obviously that's dependent on the athlete and just have them go for 8 10 12 reps so they can groove that pattern 
So those are some of the reasons why we're going to do higher volume training. And one little caveat, the older our athletes get, the stronger they get, the more um, you know, seasoned they get in the training environment. We won't always do higher volume training. You know, we'll sprinkle it in for one to two exercises, depending on the phase. Um, but the higher volume training, you know, I don't think is appropriate for older athletes who are strong, who are who have checked off a lot of boxes um, and spent time in the weight room where they are, you know, doing your bench press for eight to 12 reps, your squats for eight to 12 reps, your deadlifts, eight to 12 reps, you know, shoulder eight to 12 reps, right? Doing that can really um, you know, develop these compressive forces, really get them to be too stiff, too muscular to a degree where they're not being athletic anymore. Um, so that's something to think about. Our next question, um, should you go total body or upper lower splits if you're training four to five days a week? This is a conversation I had with, uh, you know, um, a realtor I met the other day. And, you know, we're just talking about training, talking about what, you know, what my thoughts were about his training plan. And, you know, number one, if you're someone that's struggling to work out and you actually, you know, prescribed yourself working out four to five days a week, um, you know, so if you don't work out and you want to work out five days a week, I would hire someone to program for you those five training days so you're not getting injured. So first off the bat, if you don't work out and you're like, I'm going to train five days a week hire someone to advise. That's how you can reduce an injury. Um, if you're someone that's been working out a long time and you're just, you know, trying to figure out the best strategies based on your goals, um, you know, I'll go from, I'll, I'll reverse engineer it. So if you're going to train five days a week, I would still suggest going upper lower splits. So what I mean by that is not bodybuilding splits. So if you're training five days a week, you know, let's call it Monday, Tuesday, Monday's lower, Tuesday's upper, Wednesday could be your recovery day. Thursday could be your lower again. Friday can be your upper. And if you're going to train Saturday, I would do one of two things. I would either do a total body lift on Saturday, check off some things that you haven't done yet, or train you know, in a more velocity-based way, or um, do a conditioning day. Um, that's how I would treat that fifth day. So that fifth day, you know, for example, you know, if I was going to lift five days a week and I did upper, lower, upper, lower, lower, upper, lower, upper, upper, however you want to do it, that fifth day for me, I would probably do something athletic, you know, more you know, things that are fast, you know, right. So I'd probably do some hopping, some skipping. Um, I'd probably do, you know, either a trap bar jump or high pull variation or a pin squat moving fast because we do want to be conscious that you want to recover as well. Um, so I'd probably, you know, if I'm going to develop a workout right now, um, I'd probably do like a trap bar deadlift, um, high pull um, into like a seated box jump and then probably like a medicine ball throw variation probably go like two reps of everything for five to five to six sets. Um, and then I'd probably add in, um, you know, a little bit of a conditioning single arm unilateral circuit, you know, maybe two to three exercises for two blocks. Um, and this is where it could be like a lateral sled drag um, with, you know, like a you know, slider, single arm push up or a body saw push up, however you want to call it. 
um, and then maybe like a trunk movement, you know, so it could be like a side plank row variation. And then the, the third block, very similar to that as well. So getting, you know, like a, you know, single leg shoulder elevated bridge with weight um, or, you know, maybe like, a, you know, TRX leg curl um, and then, you know, some type of external rotation movement with, you know, maybe a calf raise. Um, that's kind of what I would be thinking off the top of my head based on what I typically would do for an upper lower split. Um, and then if you're, you know, what a lot of, you know, athletes or adults are lacking is conditioning. So I would do your upper, lower, upper, lower four training days and then do a fifth conditioning day. I think that would be great. If you're going to live four days a week, I would go to the upper, lower, upper, lower split. If you're an athlete, your lower days, I would keep them athletic. You know, so upper days, you know, you're going to do some type of, you know, extensive plyometrics, something to maintain the athleticism. Um, and potentially one of those upper days would be conditioning at the end. And then on the lower days, those would be more intense days where you're doing extensive, intensive plyos, focusing on linear work, multi-directional, lateral, um, vertical work. So that's how I would play it out. And then if you're going to lift three days a week, if I think, in my opinion, if you're lifting three days a week, I think the best style is total body. Um, I flirted with three days a week where, you know, I've gone upper one day, lower the other day, and then total body. I prefer to do total body when I'm training three days a week because I feel like I'm getting more out of each lift and I'm able to do more, even though the same exercises might be prescribed on those upper and lower days. If I split them up into total days, I just, I just believe I'm getting a better workout. So I prefer three days total body. If I'm training, if I'm prescribing these workouts for my athlete, same idea, I'm going to do total body for three training days a week and adding in some athletic movements on each day, probably that third day, not as much, and probably a little bit more conditioning towards the end if I have that 15, 20 minute block. Um, so that's my answer towards that, you know, how, you know, what should your workouts look like if you're training five days a week, four days a week, or three days a week? All right, so another one, how much sleep is needed? Um, so I was doing some research just so, just so I can have some sound information and um, you know, two guys I dove into. One guy's name is Matthew Walker. He has a book out there. I believe it's called Sleep. Um, wicked smart, you know, had a lot of great information. He's on a bunch of podcasts. Um, Andrew, Andrew Huberman is a guy who has a podcast. I believe it's called the Huberman Lab Podcast. Um, and they're suggesting seven to nine hours of sleep a night. Anything below seven hours, you could have some cognitive impairments. Um, and this is where, you know, if you get, uh, you know, a student who's getting six hours of sleep on average, right, the focus in class is not going to be there. Irritability may not be there. Decision making might be skewed. So if you're an athlete, your decision making might be, you know, you know, slower on the basketball court. Um, you know, you you might say things, you know, um, brashly to someone. Um, so those are some things, you know, digestion could be messed up. Um, eating habits could get messed up because you're cognitively you know, not thinking and you're not managing your emotions. Um, so those are those suggestions. But Andrew Humor had a cool little snippet on his um, website. Uh, so it's a Huberman Lab podcast, and he had a toolkit for sleep. And I'm going to read you off that toolkit because this is how detailed some people can get. And to me, like, just take one of these things. You know, as I read this, just take one of these things 
and add them into your daily regimen. You know, I don't care if you're 14 years old, 17 years old, or if you're, you know, 38 years old. These are all things that are that can be done, and you know, you should be doing. Um, and like, I'm going to read these off. Don't do them all because that'll be overwhelming, and you, you know, it could take you a while, and that's a, that could be added stress. But just choose one and see how you feel. So the first one, view sunlight by going outside within 30 to 60 minutes of waking. Do that again in the late afternoon prior to sunset. Might not be as easy for, you know, students. Um, but again, it could have to do with waking up a little bit earlier. So again, view sunlight by going outside within 30 to 60 minutes of waking. Second, wake up at the same time each day and go to sleep when you first start to feel sleepy. Easier said than done, but I, I believe waking up at the same time every day is very doable. You know, I try to get up no later than 5 a.m. every single day. Um, obviously, with a six-month at home, some nights are a little bit hectic. You know, these last couple of days, he's getting up every two hours. You know, so some of these days, it's 5.30. Um, but typically, between 4.30 and 5.30, I am up. Um, and, you know, my wife, You usually we're in bed between 8.30 and 10, but we're still, you know, feeding our, our newborn. But if you're an athlete, if you're a kid, if you're an adult, you know, especially if you're an athlete, I would choose like 10 p.m. every single day. No ifs and buts about it. Um, I bet you would feel better each day knowing that, you know, this is what time you're going to bed. You're a little bit more structured. So, again, wake up at the same time each day and go to sleep when you first start to feel tired. Avoid caffeine within eight to 10 hours of bedtime. Um, you know, Matt Walker, he suggests 12 to 14 hours. You know, so that means that if you are a caffeine drinker, um, you know, 2 p.m., you know, have have a cup of coffee no later than 2 p.m. if you're going to bed at 10 or 11 p.m. Um, and this is for you athletes who are drinking energy drinks, you know, even though it's like sugar free and all this, that and the third and you're having it for a 5 or 6 p.m. workout, that's going to mess up your sleep pattern. You know, not only working out is going to is going to disrupt your sleep pattern because you're just revved up, energized, ready to roll. But if you have a energy drink, you know, if you have like a six o'clock practice and you have an energy drink at 530, sometimes caffeine stays in your body for 12 hours, right? So that means that even if you try to go to bed at two in the morning, you still have caffeine in it and that's going to be tough to sleep. Um, so avoid caffeine within eight to 10 hours of bedtime. If you have sleep disturbances, insomnia or anxiety about sleep, try research supported protocols on the, Rev on the Revere app for iPhone. Do the Revere sleep self-hypnosis three times a week at any time of the day. It's only 10 to 15 minutes long and you will be and you will help rewire your nervous system to be able to relax. So the Revere app, R-E-V-E-I-E-R-I, R-E-V-E-R-I app. Um, so if you're someone that's can't fall asleep or you're chronically waking up in the middle of the night, having insomnia or anxiety about sleep, download the R-E-V-E-R-I app, Revere app. Um, try that out. I haven't used it. Um, I don't think I will use it just because I'm a pretty hard sleeper. Um, the next one, number five, avoid viewing bright lights, especially bright overhead lights between 10 and 4 a.m. So, you know, if you're someone in your room, try to get a dimmed light, try to turn off your lights, try to keep, you know, the TV off. Don't be on your cell phone. Um, an athlete asked me, what if I'm listening to something? You know, if you put on some some low to low key music and you're trying to go to sleep and you're not staring at your phone while on it and scrolling through Instagram, I think you're okay. Number six, limit daytime naps to less than 90 minutes or don't nap at all. Um, you know, Dr. Humerman highlights that he naps for 30 minutes, you know, once a day. 
Um, so if you're a napper, try to try to limit that for 90 less minutes. Um, so you're not like getting too deep into sleep and then you're, you know, actually more awake at night. If you wake up in the middle of the night, which by the way is normal to do once or so each night, but you can't fall back asleep, consider doing an NSDR protocol when you wake up. Enter NSDR, enter, enter YouTube, and the top three four options have different voices, durations for you to select from. Or simply do a yoga nidra protocol. That's yoga, N-I-D-R-A, nidra protocol. So if you're someone that's waking up multiple times a night, take advantage of this. Go to YouTube, down, um, type in NSDR, and see what pops up and try one of those things out. See if it helps you sleep. Um, you might consider taking 30 to 60 minutes before bed. So here are some supplements. Um, 145 milligrams of magnesium, three and eight, or 200 milligrams of magnesium biglycinate, 50 milligrams of apigenin, 100 to 400 milligrams of theanine, three to four nights per week. Um, Dr. Humerman takes two grams of glycine and 100 milligrams of GABA. So with that being said, Dr. Humerman also says that, you know, choose one of these things. I know there's a lot of research on magnesium three and eight. Um, so I'll put this in the show notes, but if you go to Amazon, you can type in magnesium three and eight and try that 145 milligrams. Um, and he also suggests that, you know, some people do really great with just theanine and they don't like magnesium. Some people do really great with magnesium and not threonine. Um, so I would probably start with magnesium, see how that feels before you go to bed. Um, and, and try that out. Um, talk to a physician first, talk to the doctor, talk to your kid's doctor. If you, this is for a kid to see if it's ideal for them. Number nine, expect to, f- to feel really alert one hour before your natural bedtime. This is naturally occurring spike in wakefulness that sleep researchers have observed. Um, number 10, keep the room you sleep in cool and dark and layer on blankets that you can remove. 11, drinking alcohol messes up your sleep as do most sleep medications. So this is highlighting melatonin. A lot of people will take melatonin, but there are there is research that suggests that melatonin does not help deep sleep. So do some research, dive into that. But there's a lot of research that's highlighting that melatonin is no good. So drinking alcohol messes it up, but also other medications that highlight this is going to help you sleep. Again, refer to your physician However, there is a lot of research that is highlighting that. Kids, and indeed all of us, have changing sleep needs over time. Adjust accordingly. We might need we might be at night owls at 15, but become morning people as we age or need six hours a night in summer and seven, eight in winter. All will vary. So those are the 12, um, those are the 12 things to do, the 12 um, toolkit sleep things you can do to improve your sleep. All right. At what age should athletes hang clean? So I see this all over social media, um, athletes hang cleaning. Um, you know, I am not like this hang clean kind of guy. You know, I like it. I'll teach it because I think there's a value in a in being able to develop the skill, right? I think there's a value so you can develop the skill. However, it takes a long time to develop the skill. Therefore, for younger athletes, are they, is it better suited to work on other things to help them improve their athletic performance? So a hand clean could take an athlete, you know, anywhere from six, eight, 12 weeks. 
um, or six, eight, 12 months to work on it. But if you improve their RDL and be able to load it, if you improve the trap bar deadlift and strength and you're spending that 10, 12, 15 minutes to to work on it. Hey, Bubba. Little man just woke up. What's up, man? How you doing? Oh. Yeah, this is uh, this what is a, this, it's called about? a podcast. Let that do this. Go upstairs, okay? Let that do this. Thank you, Bubba. Sorry, my little man just woke up. It's early. Um, so with the hang clean, you know, it takes a long time to master it, right? And I have a lot of athletes who have had some wrist injuries, who just really feel uncomfortable. They're really stiff and tight, you know. So if you are a coach and you need hang cleans in your program, you need them in your program. <laughs> You know, right? Start them as long as you can. You know, get them in a PVC pipe, buy a specialty bar that's only 10, 15 pounds, and start them as young as you can if you're a coach that needs it in their program. Um, for me personally, if I'm adding in a hand clean, it's really only because I'll have a college athlete who has to do it in college. Because a lot of kids who are, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, if I'm teaching them how to hang clean, right, they've already spent four or five years training and they're stiff, they're tight, they can't catch the front rack position. I've had some kids that have broken their wrists and elbow, so they just physically can't do it. So to me, I'm like, why, why are we not just loading up a heavy RDL? Because I can teach that in a day and then have them move it really, really fast. Right. And then we can go to a trap bar deadlift high pull, a trap bar deadlift jump. We can add in some plyometrics. So checking off that force velocity piece with plyos. This is where, you know, the benefits of a hand clean from an athletic piece can the boxes can be checked off for through plyos, you know, RDLs moving faster, um, front squats moving faster, um, trap bar deadlift, high pulls and jumps. Um, so Two trains of thought. Number one, if you're coaching, you love hand cleans. Power to you. Kudos. It's a great movement. I like them. I do them. Um, but you're going to need a lot of time to work with these athletes. So if you have sixth graders and you can get them in proper technique all the way up to ninth grade while still in, you know, ensuring technique, right? Great. Go for it. Because in a ninth grade, they can really load it up and do some good things with it, right? But if I have a 15, 16, 17-year-old, I'm going to work on building strength and, and building fluidity in the RDL, the hip hinge, the trap bar deadlift, building strength because athletes are running fast. They're doing a lot of velocity-based movements, you know, so I'm going to spend time doing other things. Um, so to me, you know, start, if you believe you need to have them in your program, make sure you understand how to coach them, make sure they're moving well. What I see a lot of athletes when they do that hang clean, right, they get into a decent RDL, but then they dump their spine. It's a big low back round. Their pelvic ducks underneath, tucks underneath, and then they catch. Ca- and knees. then and then they and yeah, I'm talking down oh there. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Right, Bubba. I know. Um, and that's where we see some low. Then we see some low back injuries, right? So I, I so young athletes who really struggle in RDLs, struggling kettlebell front squats, struggle struggle in front squats. Um, you know, they really need to master those first before they do a hand clean. So axial loading is appropriate. Their spine is strong. Their technique is efficient. So that's my train of thought with hand cleans. Like it, love it, take it, leave it. You know, that's just my opinion. And then last but not least, um, a lot of athletes will come up and, you know, say like, oh, I hurt my heel. What should I do? Um, you know, so number one, if you hurt your heel to a point where like, you got to tell me, we need to modify your workouts, go see a PT, go see a physical therapist to really dive into what's going on. Um, 
a lot of times heels and ankles and calves and the, the foot are getting hurt because of shoes, right? If you look at your shoe, you know, look at that heel wedge. If your heel is so high off the ground, you're falling forward on those toes, which means that your calf is always shortened all the time. You know, so you're probably a little bit of that toe walker. You're more on your forefoot and that calf is always turned on. So that that's going to mean that your heel is going to be tight. Your sole is going to be tight. Your calf is going to be tight. That Achilles is going to be really stiff. And any given moment you could move and something hurts. Something feels uncomfortable. Um, so that means that, right, spend some time doing soft tissue work for your Achilles, for your calf, um, doing things like that, roll the bottom of your feet out. Um, so the two main issues that I see when someone's coming to me with calf, Achilles, foot issues, it's going to be the shoes, get out of the shoes that you're wearing, find a wide toe box shoe, find a shoe that's got a low heel elevation, and then strengthen your calves. And then strengthen your calves. So single leg calf raises, slow and controlled, balancing on one foot, finding your midfoot, you know, but again, see a PT so you really understand what's going on. Um, you know, we'll work on these things in our gym, but obviously if an athlete's really, really hurt to a point where they have to modify their workout, you know, we're going to advise to go see a physical therapist. Um, so those are those questions um, based on what I've heard in the gym today, right? We dived into higher volume training. Should you go total body or upper lower splits, depending on how many days a week you're training, how much sleep is needed, what age should athletes start doing hand cleans? Um, I don't even know if I answered that. But again, if like I said, if you love hand cleans, you can start them sixth, seventh grade. That's if you love them. But to me, check off the RDLs, check off the front squat variations, check those strength pieces off so they're moving well. Um, they feel confident and comfortable. Um, and then how did I hurt my heel? So so reasons why athletes hurt their heel. Um, thanks for tuning in. A little bit longer of an episode in the show. You know, so it's spring break over here. So if you're on spring break and you're going for walks on the beach, um, you know, tune in, listen to this, and I hope it helps. Have an awesome day. Thanks for tuning in to the show. If this episode was helpful in any way, please share this episode with a teammate, a parent, or a coach to help get this podcast in front of many people like yourself. I really appreciate your support. For more information about sports performance training, follow us on Instagram at fitstrength underscore performance or subscribe to our YouTube channel that has over 1,500 videos. Have a great day and happy training.